Hello and welcome back to Wandering the Edge, a podcast about Ukrainian history with a spot of travel. I am Larissa and I will be your host on this journey. Good news, uh, Wandering the Edge is now available on Apple Podcasts. So if you are listening to me through iTunes, please leave a review and a comment. And a reminder, we're also available on Spotify or simply by checking out the website on wanderingtheedge.net. So I may have bitten off more than I can chew for this week's topic, so it will have to be split into two parts. Why, you might ask? Well, it's because I'm dumb and I thought I could condense a millennia old culture into a 45-minute podcast episode. That civilization, um, I should say, was the Kukuteni Tripilia one, but I will just shorten it to um, Tripilian because I already talk too much as is. As a reminder, I do tend to swear, so I apologize for that, but before we go down some ancient memory lane, let's go through some travel options for you, shall we? So in my latest time spent in Ukraine, I actually loved going to museums. Um, I tried to go to as many as I could, but there's just so many small ones scattered across uh, Kiev and across Ukraine. It would like take many, many years to go to all of them. One of my favorite museums in Kiev, though, was the National, National Museum of the History of Ukraine, which... I know is a bit of a word salad, but uh, that's what you get when you just use Google Translate to translate your official name. Um, that museum is located at 2 Volodymyrska Street. It sits on top of a hill overlooking Podil, uh, right at the bit of the street that merges with Andreevsky Uzvis, which is like the souvenir market in the city. But uh, the museum is sort of unseen. It's not hidden exactly, but unseen. Like, I had to actively look for it, and you have to go up a couple of stairs in order to get up there. But once you get a glimpse of the building, you will be stunned. It's sort of like the nouveau Roman classical design, or whatever it is that architectural structure is, where it like looks like ancient Roman stuff. But the building itself was founded in 1899 as the Museum of Antiquities and Arts in Kiev, and one of its founding fathers was Vikenty Kvoika. Remember him? He's important in this episode. Um, he was the first curator of the archaeological department. The building, and I guess the concept, was then redesigned in 1937 to be the Shevchenko State Art School, but then after the Second World War, it became the National Museum of History. The museum today still holds many of the items discovered by those early archaeologists, and it is literally rooms full of historical stuff. And of course, cheap entry. But also, none of those scary little Ukrainian ladies who yell at you constantly. 
Now, the historical objects begin even before you go inside the building, since the location of the museum is apparently on the site of the Kievan Rus's first stone church, the Church of the Tiths, which was created by Voldemir the Great after he accepted Christianity. And it's called the Church of the Tiths because Voldemir set aside a tith of his income to finance its construction and upkeep. It was actually called the Church of Our Lady. Now, the church was destroyed uh, during the 1240 siege of Kiev by Mongol armies of Batukan. Uh, but the ruins were still around in the 1650s based on a painting done by um, Abraham von Westerveld. Uh, there's also a theory that this was the location of a wooden fortress, which I guess might be true if you know the stories of Oyha's Revenge, which will definitely be in another episode because that woman was awesome. Anyway, inside of this museum, you will literally find anything and everything to do with Ukrainian history, beginning from the Stone Age to a display from the Revolution of Dignity of 2017 and the current war against Russia. There's a lot of antiquities from the Trapillion culture, which we will look at today, uh, but also from cave and Rus times. There's also a carriage of Russian Empress Elizabeth, which I swear you could still smell the grass that it rolled over. Uh, there's also ancient Scythian artifacts, along with religious icons, national cultural uh, costumes from around Ukraine, and a room that is just filled with coins. When I was living there, um, I took my parents and my friends because their special exhibition at that time included flags that hung along the front lines of the war with Russia. And I don't remember if this is a permanent collection or if this was just part of the wider modern revolutions of Ukraine collection. But I do recall there was also a room dedicated to the 2004 Orange Revolution. Um, there's also some really great views of cave on the second floor of the building. If you are like looking out over the skyline of Podil and the Dnipro River. And again, super cheap to get in. And I think you could even take pictures of the artifacts, but only if you pay them extra. And if you want to get there, it's probably easiest just to walk up for Maidana Zelezhny's metro, since you'll walk by St. Michael's Monastery and Mihalivska Ploshcha, or St. Michael's Square, and then just walk down the Svetlana Street, and it will be across the street from St. Andrew's Church. Alternatively, if you are in Podil area and want to come up, you can get off at Poshtova Ploshcha metro station and take up the Vernicular, I love saying that, Vernicular, um, up to Mehalivska Ploshcha and walk down the Svetlana Street. So you'll get a bit of a ride and a view too. Apparently, you could get a guide for an additional fee. So if you don't know Ukrainian, it's probably worth it. Um, but now, let's dig deep into Ukrainian history. So before we begin, I just want to say archaeology is definitely not my thing. I took like two archaeology courses at university. One was like 
prehistorical anthropology, I think. And the only thing I remember is that we all came from Africa. And the other was like ancient Greek or Roman archaeology. And I recall talking about dating soil, but nothing really stuck. And then I delved into this topic. And holy shit, am I happy I did not go further into that field because it is difficult. So I take my hat off to you archaeologists because if I did what you did, there would be a lot of complaining about the weather, my back, and apparently the amount of mathematical theory that goes into fieldwork. Also, a lot of the material I found is from Ukrainian archaeologists who sometimes translated their work, but in not very clear English. No fault of their own, um, since scholarly work is predominantly now in English to become popular. But it took a couple of read-throughs to understand what in the hell they was talking about. I think this is as far back in history as I will go for this podcast, since I don't know if I can figure out anything older than the Neolithic period. And with that, let us begin. So, in the late 1800s, a Czech-born teacher by the name of Vikenty Kvojka, that guy I said to remember earlier, uh, was living in Cave, and he became interested and actively engaged in archaeology. His first excavation in the um, Kilivsky Hills of Cave discovered a Paleolithic encampment made from mammoth bones. Even though his interest in archaeology was mostly in medieval cave and Rus, he managed to find artifacts from even earlier when he was excavating along the Dnipro riverbanks in Kiev. His further excavations near the town of Tripilia near Kiev marked the discovery of a new culture, which he named Tripilian or Tripilian after the town. He said his interest in archaeology stemmed from his finds of ancient monuments and that these people clearly, quote, could not disappear without a trace, end quote. True enough, Vikenti, true enough. And so, in 1897, he presented his findings at the 11th Congress of Archaeologists, and this is the year that marks the beginning of Tripilian study. While that story is boring, The story of how in 1884, Teodor Burada found fragments of pottery and terracotta figurines among the gravel used to maintain a road in Romania is more interesting, in my humble opinion. The first excavation of Cucuteni in 1885 would also be the beginning of the study of the eventual um, Cucuteni Tripilian culture. Because years later, after academic discussions and examinations, they all realized that the fragments found in Romania and in Ukraine were part of the same civilization. This civilization existed on what is now Moldova, Romania, and Ukraine. In Ukraine itself, it encompassed the Carpathians and went down the steppe to the Danube River and to the Black Sea and the Dnipro River. Its most enduring location was along the middle to upper Dniestad River because during that time, uh, Europe's temperature was warm, which was great for things to do with agriculture and growing and stuff. Uh, Anyway, the sites identified to the civilization are massive. 
There's something like 3,000 identified so far, and some of them are the earliest known urban settlements. So these are actual cities rather than like little villages, and they were huge, and we'll talk about that later. So this area was first settled in around 45,000 BCE by Neanderthal um, mammal, mammal hunters. About 40,000 years later, the Trapelian Age began, and it could be classified in three eras. The Early Age, which was um, 5,800 to 5,000 BCE, the Middle, from 5,000 to 3,500 BCE, and the Late, from 3,500 to 3,000 BCE. The Trapelian settlements predated those of Egypt and Sumer, which is that civilization that lived in Mesopotamia and what is now in southern Iraq. Apparently, there's a saying in archaeology that history begins at Sumer, which is now debatable since more and more research is being done on the importance and magnitude of the Trapelian civilization. Yes, Sumer in, is in Mesopotamia, also had cities in the written language, but it is now disputed if they were the first. While ancient Egypt has one of the most longest lasting monuments to their ancient civilization, the Trapelians predates them by almost 2,000 years. The early dynastic period of ancient Egypt dates from 3150 BCE, and the Great Pyramid of Giza didn't start being constructed until about 2580 BCE, after the Trapelian civilization disappeared. Randomly, it was in the late Trapelian era that horses were domesticated on the Pontic steppes, which might also influence the Trapelian decline. So the Trapelians settled in Ukraine and changed from hunting-gathering to agriculture and raising livestock. This would last until the decline of the Trapelian civilization. But due to the relative peace of this time period, they managed to establish urban settlements, cities in a way. Envar Shukurov and Mihailo Videko who is a very well-known Ukrainian archaeologist and Trapelia expert and has been used a lot in the research of this topic. Uh, they indicate in their article, The Evolving System of Trapelian Settlements, that so far, more than 4,500 sites have been found of the Kukuteni Trapelia culture, and about 2,300 of those sites are in Ukraine. The settlements themselves range in size, which is expected since even today there are various sizes of settlements in existence. The earliest known settlement in Ukraine is in uh, Bernashivka along the middle course of the Nistad, which had a few tens of buildings. The Buchnistad uh, location of western Ukraine not only has small settlements, but also major ones like uh, Vesilia Krut, which is about 150 hectares, and Miropolya, which is about 200 hectares. 
there is also evidence of both temporary and permanent settlements. The permanent ones were, of course, the large urban ones. What is really fascinating was how these large urban centers were actually built. They ran along a distorted nestled ellipsis with a large area um, in the center free of buildings. There were there was like defined streets and quarters within a built up area and like large communal buildings in certain locations. These cities had hundreds or even thousands of dwellings, all of which existed at the same time. The reason we know this is because the Trapelians liked to burn their settlements often. But the actual city, as evidenced by stratigraphy, planigraphy, and stylistics, I have no idea what any of that means. It's all archaeology speak. Uh, were created and developed in a step-by-step basis. Houses were first built without a plan and then destroyed before a circular ellipsis fortifications were built up. It was then that the houses and buildings existed and were inhabited all at the same time. So there's an article in the Trapelian Civilization Journal, which includes in its editorial board that Dr. Mihailo Videko from earlier, and which is also all free online, and a link can be found to in the sources blog on wanderingtheedge.net. Anyway, it explains the stages of urban development. So stage one is the stage of settling, when small groups of houses appear. Uh, Stage two is the stage of centralized construction in which the fortifications and main streets are constructed. And then stage three is the stage of development, which expands the structures in the site. And the final stage four is when the settlement is burned and they all move on. Apparently, the largest of these settlements are between the southern Buch and Dnipro rivers in western Ukraine. So like agricultural paradise with all that black earth and stuff. So that's why there are farms um, incorporated within this large settlement plan. And like some of these cities, especially if you look at the city plan of Petreni, are literally concentric circles. And others like Maidanetska, you can clearly tell where the fortifications around the settlements are. Some sites are clearly marked by quarters and divided by streets with special entrances to the settlements, while others are also flanked by more dwellings. Uh, The ones that have a clear fortification are protected by um, two lines of some sort of wall with an open space between them. I guess in order to be able to like fall back and defend the site better if there is an attack of some sort. Now, it seems that those two walls also contained, like, townhouses. So the walls were also used for dwellings, and I guess for defensive purposes. It was a multi-floor structure, too, with the living quarters on the second floor. The Nebelivka site is uh, apparently highly structured, with eight rows of structures and then six isolated ones. Four rows are laid out on a north-south axis, while the other four are on the east-west axis. 
the structures in the northern part are densely packed and form various streets. Three of the north-south rows are interrupted by a gap for something. They still don't know what. Uh, while one row holds large structures. One of these structures is almost 130 feet in length and over 65 feet in width. So we know what the dwellings of the Trapelians look like through excavations, but also because of the pottery they used. They literally made many houses, either as decoration or as some sort of religious practice. Um, you can see an example of this on this episode's cover. Some of these dwellings, and I'm taking this from Nina Koleko's 2016 work, Substantial Features of Trapelian Art Culture, uh, were built in a form of a deep dugout, a dugout or semi-dugout, and called a borde. But the roof would be like above ground, and I guess the living structure would be below ground. Other structures had floors and the hearth, which were strengthened with clay, while the walls were built of uh, wood coated with clay. The earliest stages of development included buildings on pillars with coated wooden wicker walls and a thatched or reed uh, roof. From the excavation images, um, it looks like the dwellings are two stories. The lower story was probably used for storage and like garbage. Um, the structure was a timber frame with supporting posts made from tree trunks set deep into the earth for a more secure vertical position. The floors were wooden and covered with clay and then straw, which was common throughout the world as a way to soak up any spillage. Now, some sites have similar dwelling features. Uh, in one house at a mega site, as archaeologists like to say, there was a six by six foot oven with a round platform in the corner of the house while ceramics are near the southwestern wall along with a bench. This can be for storage or again, religious reasons. We just don't really know for sure though. There was an opening in the ceiling so the smoke could vent out. They even had windows, which were usually round with geometric or ornamental pattern, as were the thresholds of the dwellings, which archaeologists thought were meant to ward off evil spirits. The house is small, at only 23 by 13 feet, and without any room divisions. But again, archaeologists think that the first floor was used for disposing of objects and the second floor was residential. The dwelling house also had featured walls and ceilings decorated with drawings painted in black and red. The number of fireplaces in each house also vary. Some have one, while others have two, and still others have even more. It is believed one was used for like cooking, another for making um, ceramics, and, and the others for other stuff. Uh, they looked like open fire pits, basically. In addition to the benches, the houses seem to have wooden sitting or reclining furniture, and this is based on that miniature clay figurines found in those sites. Apparently, some of these even look like a sofa. I think those houses that were also dwellings for farmers to live with their animals, a feature of the Ukrainian house that's still used by rural peasants like 200 years ago. 
honestly, if you look at some of the reconstructions, some of these dwellings even look Tudor-style row houses. Now, Johannes Mueller, Knut Rossmann, and Mihailo uh, Videko, see, I told you he's famous, at least in the Tripilian archaeology world, in their work called Tripilian Megasites in European Prehistory, estimate the size of not only each house, so approximately 250 square feet, but also indicate that based on how much each person needs to live in a sedentary um, society, so about 22 square feet, in order to be mobile in the home, the estimated population of a site like uh, Majdanecka is about 29,000 inhabitants. Now, that's a lot of people living in what would today be considered a town, especially in that time period. And it's not like they were all doing the same thing. The idea was that every family sort of did a little bit of everything. So some members farmed, uh, others made tool uh, metal tools, and still others did other things that made their life easier. The temporary settlements were obviously used for hunting and fishing when people had to be away from home for long periods of time. Of course, there was also seasonal pasture herding, mining, traveling along trade routes, and other stuff that needed temporary shelters. Obviously, the diet of these living of those living in temporary settlements was the meat they hunted and were usually only occupied from spring to autumn so animals can graze. With such large and well-planned sites, there must have been a well-planned society. I mean, anarchy doesn't really bode well to well-structured urban settlements. How else do we know they had to have a structured society? The fact that the houses required a significant amount of materials, primary clay and wood, and labor. It had to be organized somehow. Archaeologists believe that these large settlements controlled territories um, about between 10 to 20 kilometers in radius and even maintained their own capital and dependent towns and villages. This apparently is the work of a chieftain. Latest research um, indicates that there was a certain level of uh, hierarchy and some are even debating that there was like a state-level society, since archaeologists think that some of those public buildings were used for large meetings or religious ceremonies. This is important because when you have a hierarchy, you have the ability to solve problems from land distribution, settling disputes between families and clans, providing protection, and negotiating trade. So, even though the main economy of the Trapelians was farming and hunting-gathering, they did use weapons. I think both in defensive and offensive actions. So, Mihailo Videko, in his article, The Disappearance of Trapelian Culture, from 2011, indicates that it would only be logical to conclude that with such large settlements, they could muster a few hundred or even thousand warriors for their defense. And further, he adds, quote, such a powerful for that time and well-armed, including the most advanced copper weapons, 
military contingent was quite sufficient to discourage neighbors who did not have such a mobilized resource from raising territorial and property claims, end quote. That little bit of the most advanced copper weapons bit is important because at that time, that was the most advanced technology. Weapons that were found in excavations include arrow tips made from bone and flint, knives and daggers made from flint, uh, bone and copper, clubs made from stone, which super easy to make, by the way, and axes made from stone and copper. Apparently, archaeologists haven't really found a lot of weapons in their excavations, which some archaeologists believe implies that the civilization was relatively peaceful. But I don't know. It seems like there were a lot of less people out there to threaten those mega sites, or they might have been like incorporated into the city, town, or whatever you want to call it with the expansion of the Trapelian clans. Like, it was peaceful because there wasn't really anything out there to threaten it. Now, some archaeologists have taken that lack of mass weaponry and an abundance of female statuettes and sort of ran wild with it. Some, like uh, Maria Gimbutas, put forward their theory that it was a peaceful, egalitarian, goddess-centric society. But I think that's a bit too simplistic. Hell, it might have been goddess-centric, but it doesn't mean it was completely peaceful or egalitarian. I feel like it's a theory that, like, these peaceful, hippie-ish, simple people were wiped out by a brutal, warlike tribe, which sort of ignores the fact that the Trapelians were around for millennia, so they must have been able to defend themselves. Anyway, to add to the defenses of the town, there is evidence that they had trenches running around the palisades and include natural defense systems. Uh, with man-made ones. So they used what nature put in their way. If there was a dip, they would end up being a trench. If there was a natural hedge, it would be incorporated into the defensive structure. So they sort of used everything they could. So we know that they could muster up some troops, but we don't know if these troops were used to attack others, since there are no cemeteries found in any excavations. Yes, that's super weird, but it may, may have something to do with how they destroyed their cities. So we know that every couple of decades, these settlements would be intentionally burned down. At first, archaeologists believed this was due to an ancient or to an accident or even an attack from another clan. But the modern theory is that this was done on their own because it was widespread. So it was literally everywhere and not like 
sections that caught fire one decade and then another fire destroyed a different section of the city in another decade. Also, accidental fires wouldn't destroy the same amount of clay in the walls as such a deliberate ongoing fire would. Carolina Harat also logically pointed out that there are no bone remains in any of the burned buildings. So the city being razed accidentally or by warfare probably doesn't make sense. Plus, there's so many of them throughout the entire territory of the Trapelian culture that it just doesn't make sense that it would be accidentally so often and like all over. So there are various theories on why they burned their settlements. Some of them are practical, like fumigation or even demolition of the cities, which also makes some sense since wood would be a material they used and I don't think it would be able to withhold deterioration for hundreds and hundreds of years, especially in that time and place where trees weren't like weatherproof. So maybe... This was done to destroy the site since it no longer could be maintained, either due to the wood or or even the infestation of disease, insects, or pests. Another explanation might be that the Trapelians viewed their world as a cycle, which is also expressed on their pottery. And so every like 80 to 150 years, they sacrificed their cities and create new ones. Some archaeologists have even theorized that this was done when a certain important or famous chieftain died, and so the city would need to be sacrificed alongside him, or her, we don't know. I think maybe this is possible, but like, not just one chieftain, but maybe like if a dynasty ended, but I mean, we just don't know because we have no idea what kind of societal structure they had. Other theories include that fire was a means to reincarnate the house because this culture believed that inanimate objects had some type of soul and by destroying the house or city it means you strengthen the reborn or rebuilt structure. This type of destruction required a highly organized society that would work together to fuel the fires to that extent, which, as you've seen, isn't out of the realm of possibility with the Trapelian civilization. I think it's most likely a combination of ecological decline, religious cycles, and natural deterioration. A settlement takes shape around some form of natural resources, but after about a hundred years, I'm sure the environment around that settlement has changed significantly, and so resources are now low. Yes, they produce agricultural products, but it's not like today where you can modify and force growth. You literally had to wait for shit to grow properly and harvest it on time or you're screwed. And if you chop down all the trees in the area around you, this influences the soil, which no longer holds water properly, and the ecology around you gets sort of screwed up. And I'm sure this cycle influenced their religious beliefs. And because fire is the easiest way to destroy things, almost completely, 
That's the means they use to destroy their cities. It probably helps that by that time, the wood in the dwellings and other structures is probably deteriorated and needs to be rebuilt anyway. So burn it all down as a way to sacrifice it to whatever gods they believe in. I mean, a death of a chieftain could also be like a weird omen for them also like chief so-and-so was great and he died naturally or unnaturally and so the gods have told us that it is now time for our city to be reborn so light it up now some cities were rebuilt while others were left behind and the people of that settlement seemed to have departed to other areas i guess it had to do with the area around them there were enough resources for them to rebuild or where they were forced to find new living area. I uh, don't know. If I had a time machine, I could probably be able to tell you, but I can't. And that's what archaeology is. A sort of guessing game with evidence to either prove you right or wrong. But you could also be wrong with the evidence in hand since that evidence is like only one piece of a very bigger puzzle. And that is all I will be talking about for this episode. Please join me again in part two of our exploration of the Trapelian civilization on the 15th. There won't be so much talk about houses, I promise. If you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review on iTunes and leave a comment about anything. But if you know about some weird history about your culture or civilization, let everyone know. And if you're listening on Spotify, well, thanks for that. And if you want to check out any sources or blogs or anything else, please check out the website wanderingtheedge.net. As always, happy wanderings, my friends. <laughs>